This is Karen with Coach's Corner Chats. I just want to take a moment to say thank you, thank you, thank you for the support of this podcast. If you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button and take a moment and fill out a review. It makes a whole lot of help in terms of growing and developing this podcast. Enjoy today's chat. Peace. Hey, this is Karen, Coach's Corner Chats, and joining me is Sky Eddie. Sky, where are you at and what are you up to? Hey, Karen. Um, I am in Richmond, Virginia. It's been a good day. We're in the middle of Gratitude Week at Soccer Parenting, so it's been a good, fun week. I've already uh, interviewed Jen Abrahams today, so it's been a great day. What goes into Gratitude Week and what is that? You know, it's our fourth annual Gratitude Week at Soccer Parenting. So it's just an activation that we push out to all of our partners across the United States, really kind of global. Um, just an opportunity to be intentional about thanking coaches, thanking parents, thanking players. It's, you know, gratitude is sort of foundational in our work that we're doing here at Soccer Parenting in terms of establishing trust and community. And so it's just a week that we're intentional about it. And uh, so our club partners, coaches, parents even are, you know, chiming in, sharing our social messages across platforms. We have a virtual gratitude wall. People are chiming in with messages. And yeah, it's all about the love this week, Valentine's Day week. We always do it during Valentine's Day week. What was, uh, what was the impetus in starting this association in the first place? Soccer parenting? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um yeah, so the origin story of soccer parenting is uh, my kids coming up in the game and just being really clear that collaborative relationships would be in the best interest of player development. And so collaborative relationships with appropriate boundaries between coaches, between parents, um, you know, absolutely are foundational to our work. And um, I was really frustrated with my daughter's experience specifically um and uh she was struggling i was struggling and uh, i just really kind of tried to dive in and uh you know just understand more also about how parents can support players and i thought it would be easy to be a soccer parent after all my coaching and all my playing and um and it wasn't so it's been a learning journey for me it's been amazing uh and uh and thankfully we've we've brought all of these partners and people along with us and feel like we're doing some culture changing work you just mentioned the coaching and the playing. When did you get into the game of soccer? Like when did, were you uh, playing as really, really young or did you, were you a late bloomer? How did it all start? Yeah, no. So I, um, I grew up in the game. I was lucky enough to grow up in Reston, Virginia. So tons of opportunities available to me to play. I was born in 1971. So I'm a title IX baby and um, soccer was always my number one sport also ran track really competitively in high school, but landed on soccer for college. And um, and I've always really been a coach too, since a young age, since like high school, I started coaching other goalkeepers. I was a goalkeeper. So just started working with youth kids in the area and um, really just found a passion for coaching, teaching, learning, just like general nature of, of you know, the science behind learning and how we can best support uh, young athletes and learning. So yeah, it's, it's always been a big part of my life. And, um, you know, I grew up typical for my age and my generation, you know, grew up playing ODP and, you know, that was sort of our pathway then. Have you always been 
kind of a leaderish if you talk about the youth kind of helping out the younger youth players and all those types of things was that some one of your strong suits of if something was going on we can look to sky and she will kind of lead us through some things Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I think if you were talking to some of my high school friends, they would say yes immediately, but it didn't necessarily, I mean, I was like the vice president of the school. I was in a lot of clubs. I was volunteering and leading things. And, and yes, that's always kind of been in my DNA. I mean, I'm a goalkeeper, so there's a certain level of that, but I'm also a goalkeeper and I'm a little awkward and, you know, we have our issues. And so uh, you know, I wasn't like I was I was always uh, a little bit of an oddball leader or, you know, just thinking through things a little bit differently. I think you know that's just my goalkeeper nature, how I kind of bring that. What were some of the things that you remember from the ODP in the high school days that kind of stand out to you? I loved ODP. In fact, I think in many ways, ODP would be a great solution to trying to go back to how we're going to develop players. I know it's, it's a great structure um, for me. That was the best coaching that I received usually. Um, you know, I would, uh, that and going to Dr. Magnick's camp in the summer, like my week of camp would be my goalkeeper instruction or my week at region one camp with Terry and the staff there would be my goalkeeper instruction. So one, it's where I really fell in love with the game. It's where I really started to have a lot of confidence and motivation just based on my experiences in ODP and the feedback I was getting from my playing um, but those were also some of the greatest trips. And I mean, I was on the first trip that went overseas ever for ODP. So I was on our first region one trip that we took to Holland and Italy in 1987, I think. Um, and it was transformational for me. I will never forget sitting at the, uh, we were in Rotterdam sitting at uh, watching the Netherlands men play the USSR a year after Ben Basten scored that goal in the European Championships. Uh, we were there at the next friendly that they played after. And granted, I didn't even know that they had played a year before. Like it wasn't, I wasn't on my radar screen international football really at that point. We would watch, you know, German soccer on Saturday mornings on PBS. That was it. Um, but I sat there in the stands next to Peter Vanderdoyle, who was our tour guide who I just remember his name, we kept in touch for many years and uh, uh, everything just clicked for me. It was, I just, I saw the global nature of football and what it could do. And uh, that was when I really just decided that this was what I wanted to do with my life. So ODP was really uh, amazing just for those experiences. And I still, you know, the coaches that we had in region one and that era were just phenomenal people. Jack Sakala, Randy May, you know, these are uh, Ed Townsley, you know, these were these were guys, Rick Copeland, that just put so much, uh, you know, passion into coaching that, uh, you know, really also for me and for many of my teammates, I know, you know, sh sh taught us what good quality coaching looks like with really quality relationships and caring about people. So you go through that experience. Do you then take your play to college and, and to the next level? Yeah. So I played collegiately at the University of Massachusetts. Um, I played there three years. I redshirted my junior year. When I went back for my senior year, I ended up, I recently told the story on soccer parenting, but I ended up quitting during preseason and transferred overnight. You could never do this now with the NCAA rules, but I literally did preseason at UMass and played the actual season at George Mason. And, uh, we both made it to the final four. 
UMass lost in the semifinal to Chapel Hill. We lost in the final to Chapel Hill. It was a pretty phenomenal last season. Um, but yeah, so I, I uh, had what I feel like was a good college career. It was a lot of learning for me. I, like I said, I kind of opened up and wrote about my freshman and sophomore year in college and soccer parenting a while ago. Um, when Brianna Scurry published her recent book, a chapter is about me and about the relationship that she and I had in college. And I didn't really agree with all of it, but it was like kind of sucked to have like the worst year of my life put in a book that you can read at Barnes and Noble. So I could just felt really inclined to write and uh, respond to it. So uh, yeah, you can find that, you can link to it here. Um, but uh, just kind of writing about my journey. So my college experience was up and down, but ended obviously on a huge high, losing the national championship game, which uh, kind of sucked because we lost six nothing and I was the goalkeeper. But uh, making it that far and having such an incredible last season was something I'll never forget. Incredible team at George Mason. Really, really cool. What was that kind of experience of making the decision to move from UMass to George Mason and kind of not knowing what, what to make of it. I mean, that's a big choice to make after you put in the time and effort. I know all the, the hours and all that, and even to put the preseason in and to say, look, I got to make this decision. When you look back on it, how big of a step was that for you to say, okay, I'm going to go and start somewhere fresh. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something that I had a lot of intentionality about in terms of, I didn't put a lot of thought into it. Like everything happens so fast. Uh, it was really about me taking my power back in a relationship with my coach that wasn't as positive as it could have been. There was a lot of just like emotional manipulation and I was really struggling. And so when I quit the team, it was really just telling me, telling the coach to just, you know, mm -hmm. F you and leaving the team. And that was hard. I mean, it happened in an emotional moment, um, but I, obviously love my teammates and cared so much about the team and the team doing well. So it wasn't easy, but it got to the point where it was just essential that I do that for my, for myself. And so it was a pretty selfish decision, um, but it ended up playing out great. And, um, you know, to Bri's credit, she kind of highlights that in the chapter and that, you know, it all worked out in the end for everyone. Um, you know, they had a great career. She finally, you know, she and I split time and, you know, it was just, it was a struggle. It was a stress for, for us all the time. Um, so she had a great season, played every minute of every game, which she deserved to do. And I got to play every minute of every game, which I felt like I deserved to do. And we both really thrived. What was it about the situation at George Mason that allowed you to go there and thrive? You talked about not really feeling the love from or the, you know, the comfortableness of where you were at at UMass. What about George Mason was the one that you picked to go to? Really, it was just circumstance. It came down to who has a scholarship that's still available that I can talk to in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not joking. It all happened so fast. Like I literally quit at like four o'clock in the afternoon. I met with Coach Rudy 10 o'clock the next morning, got a signed release from him and then signed the paperwork to transfer an hour later and then packed up my car, drove home and started preseason again at George Mason the next day. Like, I mean, it was just truly so fast that there wasn't a lot of thought. I mean, there were other schools I considered. I almost uh, transferred to the University of Hartford, which is a division three program where Dr. Matnick, uh, a mentor of mine, uh, he was coaching there then. So he had a spot for me. I most transferred down, I think to FIU, uh, somebody was there that, you know, so it was just a few things. And then it just worked out perfectly at Mason. So Jack had been my ODP coach. I knew him. I trusted him. 
uh, a lot of my teammates at Mason, a handful of my teammates at Mason, I knew just from growing up in Northern Virginia, Julie Helmuth um, was the sister of Holly Helmuth, who was my roommate in college at UMass, became a, a teammate of mine at Mason. So there were a lot of connections. And, you know, um, Paul Ellis was the assistant coach there. Just such a, you know, these are just, you know, exceptional um, coaches and human beings. And the team just really gelled. It was just one of those things that we all dream of, of being on a team where, like, the self-belief, the concept of the togetherness, the sense of community, it was just so powerful. And, you know, how does that happen? It was just, it was just magic. So, What is it when you just talked like magic, you talked about the quality of the George Mason, you talked really, really highly of the ODP experience with the coaches. Mm -hmm. What separates those coaches from like being your good to being like quality, I guess is the word that you were using. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we talk a lot about different terms related to this. Like, are they transformational or the transactional coaches? Of course, these are transformational coaches. These are coaches that care more about me as a person than me as an athlete. These are coaches that don't have an ego, that are confident in themselves, that have a high self-belief in themselves. They trust themselves. They're therefore able to impact an environment. Um, I think that also just the sense of quality, um, quality of a training environment, quality of interactions, quality of the experience that uh, you know you want the athletes in front of you to have. I mean, whether that was ODP or whether that was um, you know, my experiences at Mason, uh, you know, that, that was, you know, really steadfast. And, and I will say also in both those organizations, I haven't really thought about this before, but I, you know, as I'm thinking now, they also have really good leadership above them. Like, like I look at ODP and I can't help but thinking about like Charlotte, Dema uh, Charlotte Moran and um, Mrs. D and uh, Sharon Gregg, like these incredible volunteers that were administrating this program that were like made such a big difference that leadership did. And then also at Mason, like the athletic director when I was at Mason was so wonderful. She was like part of the team and uh, cared about us. And I remember when I, when I transferred and the conversation that I had with her before um, I signed my scholarship paperwork there, you know, she, she, she really, you know, the, I think that the, the leadership really matters as well. So you have an amazing experience at George Mason, do really, really well, get to the finals. Graduation comes. What does Sky do now? Yeah. I mean, I was a first team All-American. I was MVP of the Final Four. It was the last game I ever played. There, there wasn't a league. Like, <laughs> and I, I say that with a mic drop on purpose. Like, it's so cool now. I was at the convention this year to see the draft. Are you kidding me? It was amazing. And to see the opportunity that these women have. I mean, I eventually did. Of course, I played for like the Philadelphia Freedom, uh, you know, when I was working at Lanzara. And I'll, I'll talk about Lanzara in a moment. I I eventually sold everything and moved overseas and did play in Europe um, for Tavignacco Femminile in Udine in Italy and, and was a life altering experience there. But I was I never could get the visa that I needed in Italy. I was only there for three months, almost four months. So I never really felt like I experienced like being a professional athlete. And um, yeah, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, to be fair, uh, the MLS wasn't even around when I graduated college. The MLS came the year after. And, um, and so my journey was like so many of my uh, colleagues' journeys uh, in the sport as well. It just kind of came to an end, sadly. And that's where the coaching came in. 
Um, you know, I was on our national team player pool, but I was not really in the mix with the national team. And if you weren't in the mix with the national team at this point, there was really just no, uh, there's no incentive. I played in men's leagues and everything and, and tried to keep it going, but uh, I had a great job at Lanzara. And so um, was really, really lucky to have landed this job that, that has led to so many contacts that I have to this day. And that I know has really helped push soccer parenting forward based on the contacts that I made through that experience. And what exactly, what exactly is Lanzara? I mean, do you not know? I do not know, yeah, honestly. Yeah. So it was, it, uh, that's so cool. Um, and, and I usually preface this by saying, you probably haven't heard of Lanzara, but, uh, but so Lanzara was the first American soccer, soccer manufacturer. Um, so incredible, incredible boot really, really high quality. You talk to people that are in their fifties and they're like, Oh, I love those cleats. Like I was just up in New Jersey for the weekend speaking at their AGM and I uh, had a Lanzara conversation with people. Um, they uh, produced the first injection molds cleat. So what we see now is just normal practice. Uh, you know, it's a, the, the bottom of the cleat is just one molded piece that wasn't ever, we, we were the first company that did that. Um, and uh, it was owned by four Americans, the Malone brothers from New Jersey. Um, and the logo was a flying four. So it was an up upside down four for the four brothers. With And it looked like the Nike swoosh. They ended up putting them out of business. Nike sued them for logo infringement and uh, really couldn't ever quite come back from that. Um, but it was a great job. Um, so our uh, teams were... I was in charge. I was working in promotions and marketing, so had the college programs. So Bruce Arena, UVA, um, Princeton, where Bob Bradley was coaching at the time. Those were all Lanzara teams. We had 50 to 70 teams across the country that, you know, uh, were, were wearing our, our brand. And that was uh, where what I was responsible for, sort of uh, um, supporting uh, the, the marketing team there. You mentioned selling everything to go to Italy. Mm. What a, what a huge leap, especially not knowing how long you were going to be there. Well, yeah. Why is that just something you were just like, I've got to keep playing. I want to see what the next level is about. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was sort of like, I was 26. I was like, I got to do this. Like if I'm going to have this dream, I'm, I'm, I'm sure at the time I was still dreaming of playing on the national team. I hadn't like totally given up that dream, but I was playing in men's leagues. I was coaching a ton of coaching. I was, um, you know, playing in a women's league when it was available to me. Like I said, not even locally, there were teams, but I went up to Philadelphia to play in a league one summer. Um, and I had, when I, when I first graduated, I had signed or about to sign to play in the J league. So the J league of Japan was, was good. And there was, there were good salaries there at the time, like, you know, for, for women, um, and then I decided not to pursue that and go and play in Sweden. And that contract fell through at the very last minute. And so then I just got this job at Lanzara. So there were some opportunities I was dabbling in and always been in my mind to go play overseas. And then, um, and then, uh, yeah, so then I, uh, Lanzara started, I kind of saw the writing on the wall with Nike coming like this lawsuit and they ended up selling to Kappa for distribution rights, um, the back-to-back -back Kappa. Um, and then, um, my goalkeeper coach at George Mason was a wine distributor in Northern Italy and called me one day and said, Hey, I, there's this team. I met this guy, Ennio Van Lent who ended up being like my Italian father. 
Uh, and he was managing this team in Tavanyako and they invited me to come play. And so I just jumped at the opportunity. The timing was perfect. I was coaching full time at that point, but just running my own goalkeeper uh, business in Northern Virginia, working with uh, new personal training and small camps and such, and was still directing camps at that point for Tony and Soccer Plus. And so it was just a perfect opportunity. And um, yeah, so I, I sold a bunch. I put some stuff in storage, sold my car, and just hopped on a plane, not knowing if ciao meant hello or goodbye. I didn't speak any Italian. And within about six weeks, I was conversational and right in the mix, and I loved it. Loved every minute of it. It was hard, but it was such a cool experience. What What does your, as you're going through all of these stages, what is your family, like what's your parents or siblings, what are their thoughts as Sky has gone from high level playing in college to now is at Lanzara doing amazing stuff there to coaching galore in camps to now sells everything and heads to Italy. They, they, they were, my parents were so supportive of it to a certain extent. Like uh, my parents have never really supported me financially. Like, so I ended up like begging for money in Italy when I didn't get paid or like literally stealing toilet paper out of a hotel uh, like, I mean, it was it was not the best experience, which is not how you want to, you know, have your your life be or be a, when you're trying to be a professional athlete. So it wasn't necessarily great. It's not like my parents came and bailed me out by any means. Um, but they were always supportive of me. I mean, you know, I think I've always had a bit of adventure in me a little bit. And so I don't think they were surprised by any means that um, and, and I think the idea was, hey, I got to make a go of it. And I will say I got there. And within, you know, within a month, I was like, I just need games. Like the training, um, I learned so much tactically from my team and from the training that we did have, but it was a lot of goalkeeper training still too. And I needed games. I hadn't played enough games. And so I had coached, I had demoed, I could fly around, I can make great saves technically, but I needed as much match experience as possible. And um, and so what became this dream of maybe making my way back into the national team mix, I just, I got homesick um, a little bit. Um, it, it wasn't like, I probably wouldn't have gotten homesick at all if the experience had been like spot on and the money came in when I needed it and I didn't have to beg for things. Um, but uh, they ended up finding a team in Germany for me to go play on that could uh, get my visa, get me all sorted out. And um, I opted to come home and got this job of uh, assistant coach at Richmond where I am right now. I'm not still coaching at Richmond, but I'm still living in Richmond where I moved 25 years ago when I came back from Italy. What was, what was that transition like to go from, all right, I playing is over and mm -hmm. now I've got to become a coach and I'm going to have to focus on that. Yeah. I mean, putting the whole playing narrative to rest was really hard for me. It wasn't, it, it, I can look back and I can say, Oh, that, that transition to Richmond was really hard. Um, I, I definitely was struggling and trying to kind of reconcile that. I just, you know, between regret or wishing that things had happened a little bit differently. So yeah, the, I'm not gonna lie, that took a little bit of time to get through. Um, I will say though, I always loved coaching. I didn't like coaching in college. I made that, I, I love the youth game. And I, I landed on that. I, I coached at Richmond for two, two and a half years until my daughter was born and didn't go back to college coaching. And maybe maybe I could have had a different experience somewhere else that would have been more enjoyable, but I really love the youth game. And I really feel well positioned just from my personality,
from what I enjoy from a teaching standpoint, um, I really feel well positioned to work in the youth game. So enjoying coaching the youth, does that mean that as your daughter grew up, did you become coach? Um, so uh, I'm with the Richmond Strikers and the Strikers doesn't let you coach your kids. So hmm. for rec, yeah, of course, I coached both of my kids when they were playing recreational level soccer. Um, but once my daughter, my son was always a recreational level player. Once my daughter transitioned into um, ADP is what we call it, like when she was eight or nine, uh, like the travel program, if you will, uh, she always had a different coach. Now, there were times where I was on the field with her once she was older, where I was doing like the goalkeeper coaching for the ECNL or for her team. Uh, so I might have been at our training, working with her, the goalkeepers on our team, or I might have been on the field, like right next to her coaching and her practice was right there. But I never actually directly coached her. And my son, I coached when he was little, but I say he was a recreation level player. He actually just ended up going to small private schools from fifth grade until he graduated. So he just played at his schools um, until he graduated. He's, in, he's just his freshman year in college this year. But um, yeah, so I didn't coach him either. I coached him both when they were little. What was it like to kind of take a step back and be a fan on the sidelines. Like you were actually one of the parents. What was it like being on the other side versus being on the coach side? Well, for my son, it was pretty easy because it was always pretty laid back with him. There were not a lot of expectations. He was always in an environment where, you know, it, it, there, there was no pressure. He's just more of an, a uh, participation pathway uh, Karen, I'm not going to lie. Like soccer parenting was born out of the stress that I felt on the sidelines. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, being a soccer parent for me was not easy. I thought it would be really easy with my playing and my coaching background, like I said, but, um, I really struggled my daughter and she's happy for me to talk about this. We've done interviews together. We've, we've done, you know, things together. Uh, her mentality at a young age was much different than mine. She was really anxious and stressed out and had a lot of performance anxiety. And I did not handle, figure out, I did not understand how to support that really well. So, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, come, I came up with this thought the other day or some, I was listening to a podcast and they talked, you know, everyone always talks about how parents like live vicariously through their child and you don't want to do that. I, I really have always pushed back anytime anyone like insinuated or would use that term living vicariously through your child. I don't think that parents do that necessarily a lot. It's not like we're, I, I wasn't trying to like relive my playing experiences through my daughter. Absolutely not. But there is this term that I heard last week that I really like, and it's the term decoupling. And I do think that that's what I needed to do. So it wasn't like I was like having this personal experience through my daughter but you care so much about your child, <laughs> like, you know, and so it's this decoupling that I needed to kind of figure out. And I think I figured it out pretty well and pretty early um, of, of supporting them in their experience or, or seeing their experience from their point of view. And so, you know, I think before I was seeing her experience from my point of view and how I would have managed something emotionally and assumed that that should be my expectation for her. And so just kind of going through this decoupling, if you will, where I could try to process things from the way she was experiencing that, that was a game changer for me. Um, but I loved, loved watching her play. She just graduated college and, um, you know, I hope that she continues her playing journey and, you know, I don't know how much I'll get a chance to see her, but yeah, her last like five or six college games, I basically like lived in Boston so that I could, I could watch her play. Cause I knew that that would be special. So how, 
how big was it during that transition, maybe through high school and going into college, where she, you knew she was dealing with some anxiety while playing and expectations and all that? Mm -hmm. How important was like communication or even letting her know that you recognized that there was some things and allowing her? Because it sounds like you two now have like an open circle of communication. The mm -hmm. fact that you can talk about it outwardly for people because you know it's going to help other parents it's going to help other players they're like dude i feel the same thing that she's feeling um how important was that for you to kind of let her know like i'm i see what's going on i don't completely understand it because mm -hmm. i see it through a different lens i need to hear what you're saying how big was that for you two like in terms of even just your relationship as mom and daughter yeah i mean i don't i don't think that that was hard for me to have that type of conversation with her I think what was hard is that she was in a tough situation. So like her, she, she played a lot for her club team. It's really competitive, but it was an environment that was really stressful for her in those moments. It was an environment where she felt a lot of personal stress to perform and to not make mistakes. And so, you know, I, I wish that I'd supported her better through that and supported her. But, you know, I think she and I would both, if she was sitting here, like we did the best we could in those moments. And now she's a much stronger athlete. Um, you know, uh, Callie spent her senior spring in Spain with Todd Bean at Tovo. It was amazing. <laughs> like yeah. she came back uh, just a transformed human being, not just even a soccer player. And so when she came back, her sense of self-awareness and confidence and joy, like there was so much joy around the game again. There was so much gratitude around the game again the stress that she constantly was feeling about performing and the social constructs that, you know, were so evident within the team, uh, those were all completely gone. And she came back with just such an enthusiasm and love of the game that, uh, you know, it was pretty special. That's awesome. That is so yeah. cool. <laughs> and then, so you talked about the experience of being uh, like a soccer parent and work, watching your daughter go through and all that. And then now here comes Soccer Parenting Association. Is that like, does that kind of the next step for you? And, and I mean, I founded Soccer Parenting when Callie was like 10. Like I've been, Soccer Parenting has been a 10 year process now. I mean, she's 22. So maybe, maybe like when she was 11, like there, it's been in the works. I just started writing blog articles and I just started, it started just as a passion project. I'm going to just explore what I'm feeling and going through, through writing and what I'm, observing in the youth game. And then it turned into an education platform. And then it turned into, you know, what it is now in terms of, you know, this robust education platform for parents and coaches, where we have over 200 club partners and state associations and leagues and uh, just so many cool things happening right now in terms of growth and opportunity and potential to effectuate some cultural change. Um, so it's definitely just sort of been a passion project that slowly stepped into this uh, great opportunity. I mean, we have seven part-time, six part-time people. We're just hiring our seventh um, that are working in, at soccer parenting across the United States. And uh, yeah, we're growing literally every day. The, the one thing you talked about earlier was not only like the quality coaches, but the leadership at the top was awesome. Yeah. So that's something it looks like just even when I go on your website and I see the quality of like a Dan Abram, Abrams and a Erica Suter and some of these other ones that have yeah. jumped on board. How important has it been as you've grown to get the right people, even talking about the part-time one, like you can't just pick mm -hmm. anybody. How important has that been for people to like buy into what you're trying to do and to also take what you're putting in place and, and keep sharing it? 
Yeah, I, I was just talking to somebody the other day. I don't remember who it was. Uh, it's like maybe a friend from high school or something, like somebody that I've known for a long time. And just talking about how much I've learned from growing this business, Grow, learned about hiring people, hiring the right people, how to manage people, how to lead, how to inspire, how to, um, you know, like look at the bigger picture about mission and vision and interlay that into the work that we're doing and how to live uh, and operate in this business space and in this culture very authentically and, and, and with the values that we're pushing out publicly. Um, I've learned so much. It's been tremendous. Um, I will tell you that every time I, I literally can't think of a single person who said no to me when I reached out to them and asked them for an interview. Like from the very beginning, Dan Abrahams, he's, I, I interviewed Dan today, like I said, I mean, he was one of my first interviews too, like six, seven years ago. Um, and, you know, every time I've reached out to anybody, they've always been excited to get uh, on board because I think that, you know, quality people that are doing quality work see the value of parents and see how much parents have been largely left behind um, so often in the structures and the systems that we have or within our culture. And, you know, at Soccer Parenting, we believe that parents will be difference makers when it comes to improving the game. And, um, and that when parents seek information about how to best support their child, that great things will happen. And, you know, this is what we're witnessing and seeing every single day. So, oh, I mean, I am so lucky and grateful for my network of people. I, I mean, I could not be more happy to have, you know, the ability to reach out to somebody like Dan or, you know, some of the other leaders, Stuart Armstrong or, you know, other leaders that I'm able to just pick up the phone and chat with and that we're able to try to, um, you know, come up with some some plan for an opportunity to make things better for people. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. I'm so grateful. This is gratitude week. I'm so grateful. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. The other thing um, you talked about catching your daughter's last five or six games in Boston. How how do you go about finding balance? I mean, you have clearly like even talking with you today you've had a lot of stuff going on i'm sure it's every day every week like we've got an entire week spent trying to connect with people and share gratitude and thanks and grow that thing and keep interviewing people etc cetera, etc cetera. how does sky keep this balanced so she can also be like mama sky and you know yeah i also want a big thing. residential real estate company in addition to all that so yeah oh my goodness <laughs> yeah so my life is kind of crazy um but I have incredible, like I was at lunch with a friend today and just talking about how grateful I am for the people that are like my, my real estate office manager is phenomenal. And um, my soccer uh, office manager is incredible person. Like they're just they, incredible people I've surrounded myself with to get a lot done who also feel, I think, inspired by the work and the, the, the mission that we're doing. Um, balance has been okay. Like I, I, you know, I try to really kind of be in the moment with where I am when I'm with my kids and when with my kids, when I'm on a real estate appointment, I'm on a real estate appointment. When I'm trying to find some time for myself, I find, uh, you know, the presence of, of being alone with myself. Like this is a challenge that we have. Um, it's a big challenge in coaching because coaching is hard. Coaching is lonely. Um, there's a lot of reflection that's required and it's not always easy to do that or to make the space for that. So you know, I think for all of us, if we're going to have successful careers, whatever path we choose is that we really need to do the intent. We really must be intentional about being present and being in the moment and um, being our best, bringing, putting our best self forth, forward in those moments. And, you know, that's what I try to do all the time. You mentioned having vision and ideas of where you 
you know, put things in place. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you, if you look forward and the impact that you want uh, soccer parenting to make, like, is there a certain goal you have, or are you just continuously just trying to build that next level to it? And what becomes of it, like more clubs, maybe, you know, getting higher level clubs, et cetera, or is there kind of a, a grand, like, yes, this is where I'd like to get to. Mm. Well, you know, so much has changed for the better I, I, since 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 last eight years. So when I founded Soccer Parenting, uh, I remember talking at the convention in California. Everyone thought I was crazy. Like, I, you know, they were like, you're doing a what? Like, let me buy you a drink. If you're going to take on and deal with the parents, like, you know, go for it. Um, and I'm really not hearing that as much anymore. So we've seen this beautiful shift in understanding and awareness. I think as leaders, we've gotten better. As coaches, we've become better human beings. I think we're starting to talk about things like emotional intelligence and those essential skills for coaching. So we're showing up better. And so therefore the culture is shifting. Um, What I would say would be the future for soccer parenting. I mean, our, our mission is to make you soccer better. Um, You know, I, I want to continue to help coaches uh, understand uh, the power of collaborative relationships. Um, We talk a lot about trust and, you know, Kieran, this all comes down to ourselves as an individual and us trusting ourselves. Like there's no way we're going to show up as a coach and impact the lives of kids that are in front of us if we don't trust ourselves. And so, you know, big picture, that's the work that we're doing. Um, when I was speaking in Denver recently, last weekend in New Jersey, I'm giving a keynote and, you know, the focus of the keynote is, you know, one of the kind of the underlying messages is go with an open heart. And, you know, that's what we need to do. We need to show up for one another, one another with an open heart, with confidence in ourselves. And then we're going to be showing up for the kids like they desperately need us to show up for them. So, you know, that is the work that we're doing at Soccer Parenting is we're trying to inspire coaches, club leaders, clubs, organizations, leagues to think deeper about the impact that we have on the lives of children and families and communities. And um, when we bring everyone together, when we bring parents, when we bring coaches, when we bring clubs, when we're, when we're in this together, then we're going to get better faster and we're going to have more trust and you know things are, are going to be better. So. That to me is is what the future of of uh, soccer parenting is. What's it like to look back? Because I'm in that same spot where, like, even this podcast was just a thing I just did a couple times. The next thing now, it's starting to kind of gain momentum. What's it like when you look back? Do you go back and like read some of your first couple of blogs, or do you kind of re? I don't know if you call them reblog them or retweet them. Do you kind of look mm-hmm. back and think, "Holy moly, I had no idea that what I was getting into." Yeah. Yeah, we're in the middle of a big content project at Soccer Parenting now. We're kind of going back to our old stuff and um, reworking some things. And so it has afforded me a chance to go back. And there have been a couple of times where I've read articles, like original ones, and be like, yeah. Like, I, how did I, I don't even remember knowing that then, but that's just what I said then is what I believe now. And maybe there might be a couple, a little bit more depth to the conversation or depth to my thinking now. But I do think that where I started this is is still where it is. And it's about connection. It's about bringing people together. You know, um, you asked how I started and why I started soccer parenting. And, you know, Callie wasn't having the greatest experience in that U9 team and the ADP team. And 
when I went and I observed her training sessions because I was just dropping her off and she kept getting in the car and not being in a great mood or not feeling inspired. And then she didn't really want to go to training and came up with excuses. And so, you know, as a parent, I just went and observed a session and then observed another session. And I'm like, I don't blame her for not wanting to be here. This is not any good. And I looked around and all the parents were totally satisfied. And so I was like, geez, if we can't get on the same page with what good quality environment for learning and inspiration looks like for our kids, like we're just beating our heads against the wall. And so then I went and talked to the club leader and I sat down in his office and like was in an upbeat, happy moods, giving some suggestions about how I could help. And I was like, not calling him out, not anything. And Karen, he just closed the door in my face, basically. And that did it for me. Like for somebody to say this game that means so much to you, that has always been such a big part of you, like you can't be a part of this or you, you, you're the, for, for the door to be shut in my face to this game. I honestly, I left, I left the office and I'm like, I'm going to get him fired. <laughs> and I joined the board the next day or like within the next week and within a year or two, he was out. <laughs> and I mean, I feel bad if he's watching this and, you know, there's obviously a lot more layers to that than exactly what I'm saying, but we, our children deserve quality leaders that are always seeking to improve and to put an environment out on the fields for the kids that is inspirational and is good learning and with coaches that are educated, um, have values and, uh, you know, we, we need that. Our kids deserve that. And so, you know, I, un I sort of unapologetically tell that story. Um, and the big, the big, you know, end to that is that now at the Richmond Strikers, we have Jay Howell here. He's been a transformational leader for this organization. Um, up until last year, I was coaching at that ADP program where Callie was and where I was so unhappy. Like, it's phenomenal now. It's incredible. I'm so proud of the environment that these young boys and girls have. And it's like a buzz going out there to the fields and just watching this learning happen in action. So, um, yeah, so, you know, this has been a, a journey, but the, the, the really ignition moment for it was somebody telling me that uh, the game wasn't available to me, basically, as a parent. And so, you know, that's where that's where this all began. So we've talked about like the impact that you're making on coaches, the impact, the, you know, the connection they have with parents and all that. How has this changed you? Like, how is this experience of going from the experience with Callie when she was younger to being a soccer parent to realizing that there was a disconnect between not literally, not just between distance from one sideline to the other, but there was literally like no cohesion between them. Yeah. How has that impacted you? The fact that you've got people that are coming on board, this thing has grown like it is the impact that you're making. Um, when you look back, I mean, look at you now, how do you think that that has helped shape and mold kind of where you're at? Mm. Yeah, I'm so, so in such a good spot right now, like soccer parenting, because of my real estate company, I've been able to just grow this slowly. You know, this has been self-funded by me. I haven't really taken a salary. Like we just slowly grow in soccer parenting. I've, I've paid other people. Um, but, you know, up until recently, this hasn't been something that I would say this could be like a full-time job, if you will. 
Um, but I definitely see that that's building to that um, shortly, if not kind of almost already there. So that to me is something I'm really proud of just to have grown another business and to be supporting uh, you know, these people and their jobs and, and such. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I don't spend that much time as a goalkeeper, you know, like I reflect, but you always have to be looking forward. It's kind of like, what's next? What's next? Like we can't spend that much time looking back um, because there's just so much ahead and there's still so much work to do. Uh, so much really exciting work to do, uh, whether that be here in the States and as our messages grow globally and we start to have an impact, um, you know, in other, in other countries and uh, you know, that's starting to happen. So we're, uh, oh, there's Callie. I thought I had silenced my phone. I'm not going to answer it, but I'll tell her later that uh, that she interrupted the podcast. <laughs> You're talking about me right now. I, my ears are ringing. I'm going to call you. Oh, oh no, I, I'm sorry. I really feel bad. I thought I had silenced my phone. So anyway, I'll try to do that now. I, I'm surprised that it didn't ring. Uh, oh, oh, to be honest. Okay, everyone, do not disturb is on. She must have called twice. So hopefully she's not in the middle of an emergency. Uh, so she must have called twice to, to come through. Yeah, she just said, oops, sorry. <laughs> I have my kids set up. So if they call two times in a row, that breaks through the do not disturb. So. Oh, right on. Right on. <laughs> um, one last thing I'll ask about is, so parenting has been kind of like your passion and you've got into, is there other parts of soccer? Like if you think about it and when it comes to coaching, and is yeah. there other things that you maybe – you know, we go soccer parenting, but now we start to also branch into maybe some other or some other things that kind of catch your attention. You're like, man, I think we could do better, you know, in situations with coaches, with oh, everyone yeah. that's involved. What other things maybe are out there that maybe you haven't got to, but maybe there's some other people that might hear it and go, you know what, that's an awesome idea. We could maybe, you know, partner up or do something similar to what you've done here with just like the parenting side. Yeah, I mean, so something that I, I mean, keep in mind, I'm, I've always been a coach. So I come to this with soccer parenting from this coaching perspective as well. And I've been so grateful to have just some of the most incredible mentors ever in coaching, just quality human beings uh, with Dr. Matnick and Tony DeChico, who I work for, as I mentioned, for a long time. And so something I've become just so curious about, or I've always been interested in, but I find myself literally like picking up the phone and talking to Stuart Armstrong or picking up the phone and talking to Marco Sullivan at AIK in Sweden about practice design and learning theories. And, um, you know, like I, it's to me, there's such a big opportunity uh, ahead for, for us to improve as coaches when it comes to it comes to that, and you know, soccer parenting was started because we weren't adequately supporting parents. The other key group that we are not adequately supporting is recreational level coaches, and this is the majority of kids in America are playing, working with volunteer parent coaches that are not supported, are not required to get education and who really don't know where to start. And I know there's a lot of companies that are trying to do this and trying to do that. And we have Moja and we have some others, but I think there is such a massive opportunity for us to get on board and get aligned around the role of a recreational level coach, guidelines, expectations, requirements for them when it comes to 
what they need to be putting forward in terms of their interactions with players and what's really important when it comes to winning versus development and what that even means. Like there's such an opportunity to educate and support recreational level coaches and to really come up with a solution that's a tangible solution that can be implemented easily across uh, our rec space. I think there's uh, just huge opportunity there. Really exciting one, because think of how the impact that that's going to have. That's an awesome idea and an arena to look into, and that's a perfect spot to shut this chat down. This is Karen with Coach's Corner Chats with Sky, Eddie, and I'm out. Peace. What a great chat. Thanks for checking it out. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Twitter at Coaches Let's Chat. Hit that subscribe button. And once again, if you get a chance, drop a review. It's super, super helpful for growing the podcast. Have a good one. Peace.